Well, this morning we are going to turn our text back to Matthew 18 in a short series that I'm entitling, How to Rescue Straying Sheep. As we've come to see, this theme here is a natural outpouring of the previous verses. After all, we know that Jesus Christ loves His sheep, He loves His people. Well, how much does He love them? Well, according to John chapter 10, as the Good Shepherd, He loved His sheep so much that He laid down His life for them. Jesus went to the cross at Calvary where He died by crucifixion so that all sins of His people would be paid for and the wrath of God satisfied. He was buried and then rose to life again the third day that all who would die with Him spiritually by faith would rise with Him, not just spiritually, but one day bodily as well. We have been united to Him. We must stay close to Him. But the question then persists, well, what happens when one of His sheep begins to stray from the flock and stray from Him? Well, the answer is they need to be rescued. And that's what we're talking about today. So if you haven't already turned there, turn to Matthew 18 in your copy of Scripture. The narrative of Matthew 18 really begins, if you remember back to several weeks, I guess at this point it would have been months though, at the very beginning of this chapter, this began with them, the disciples asking the question, who is the greatest of the kingdom of heaven? And it's kind of ironic when you look at where the chapter has progressed, how far we've gone in the chapter away from pride and arrogance and really more towards self-giving to other people and rescue and redemption and reconciliation, that the chapter would begin with such a a haughty thing, a a prideful thing. Who, which one of us is the greatest of the kingdom of heaven? But they are not expecting Jesus to grab a small child in front of him and put it next to him as an illustration and say, whoever humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But moves beyond this, not only does Jesus desire childlike faith and childlike dependence and childlike humility, he also makes it clear that he himself sees us as little children, little ones. It's like a protective parent. He watches over us. And he says in verses 5 and 6, whoever receives such a one child as in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. He pronounces judgment on any who would hurt any of his little children, especially spiritually. And he also warns believers to watch out for themselves and to exercise spiritual discipline. We're to guard ourselves, verses 8 and 9. Jesus says, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter a life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet, and be cast into the eternal fire. Then he says, likewise, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be cast into the fiery hell. Again, these are not meant to be taken literally. We're not to hurt and maim ourselves. But the point of this, and we've talked about this in previous messages, the point of all this is to give us an illustration for the seriousness of our warfare against our own sinful nature. In verse 10, he shifts back to the notion of spiritual protection. He shifts backwards to protection. And he says not only are we not allowed to cause them to stumble, verse 6, but we're also uh, not even to despise them in our hearts, verse 10. 
because Jesus loves his sheep so dearly and he protects them fiercely. We too are called to love one another and to watch out for one another. And I want you to pay attention to that, especially that we, we are actually called to watch out for each other. Not only because we belong to Christ, but we belong to one another. I mean, isn't that what all of Second, First Corinthians chapter 12 says? Isn't that what Romans 12, uh, 5 says? We are many. We who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And so not only are we together in Christ, but we're members of each other. When one of us hurts, the other hurts. When one of us rejoices, we all should rejoice. And likewise, even when we talk about the wisdom in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, to paraphrase, the hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you. Right? The ear can't despise the eye. The tongue can't badmouth the nose. All members of the body need one another. No member, no member of the body is unimportant. And as I always like to remember, every single body has an armpit, but that is where you carry your Bible when you're walking. So we all have a purpose. We are to love each other because Christ loves us. Nobody in this assembly, nobody in the body of Christ is unimportant, is less than anyone else. We all have different functions, different giftings, different capacities to serve and love and give and share. We are all members of one another, and so therefore we are not to despise one another in our hearts, but rather we are to seek to build up one another. But what happens, however, when a member of Christ's body sins against another member? Or what happens if they simply stray away from the flock or stray away from Christ in their sinful behavior? Do we, as loving brothers and sisters, do we just sit on our hands and do nothing? Well, the answer is no. We don't just sit around and do nothing. Matthew 18, starting in verse 15, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And so we've seen here that the Lord prescribes a series of steps to be taken in dealing with a sinning brother or sister, steps that range from very private steps to very public ones, from very gentle to very severe. And we've been saying all along the desire here is to keep the matter as private as possible for as long as possible. If you know that someone is in in sin, you don't go and blast them publicly you know, you don't go and tell everybody you know. You go to them quietly, gently, and you try to win them back over to the truth by yourselves. He says you start one-on-one. Verse 15, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. And I think that even at the end of you've won your brother, there's an implication here that it's the end of it. Once you've won your brother or sister back over, the matter is done. If they have repented and they have resolved to walk in righteousness, you say, praise the Lord, you pray with them, and you go right back to where you were, and it does not hang around their heads, it doesn't hang anywhere else. Now, maybe they have specifically sinned against you in particular, but maybe they haven't sinned against you, maybe it's, it's always affecting somebody, right? 
Maybe it's against someone else. It's all certainly against God. But if your brother sins, he says, go and show him his fault in private. Again, you are not to ignore the problem. Again, that's different than overlooking minor offenses. We, we can overlook minor offenses. Someone says something to you that's hurtful. You don't have to bring them into church discipline. You can see it for what it is and say, you know what, they're having a bad day. I'm just going to let that go and trust the Lord to convict their hearts and I'm going to love them through it. They might come back to you later on and say, you know what, I was wrong. I apologize. That was my mistake. And then you can forgive them very graciously and you move on. But if there are notable offenses or persistent sins, then you ought to confront your sinning brother or sister. But he says you are to go to them in private. You're not permitted to go and tell others about the sin, at least not at this step. And certainly you're not permitted to gossip about them, to tell other people about them. And we talked about, we talked about this last week and the week before as well, but gossip is sharing any negative detail with any other person who's not involved in the situation. That's gossip. You're sharing a negative thing about another person, and I would even add to that slander, which is the next step of gossip. Slander is when you're intentionally sharing things for the purpose of tearing them down to other people. When you're, when you're giving information because you want to paint a bad picture to somebody else about that person. We're never permitted to gossip or to slander. The, the Lord has very serious words about this, a very serious charge against that sin. If you look at all the series of, of lists of sins in Scripture, gossip and slander is right up there with murder and adultery and all kinds of other things. But He does command us to go, to go to them and tell them their sin in private and call them to repentance. If He listens to you, the Scripture says, you have won your brother. They repent, you restore them gently, and you move on. Again, the love keeps no record of wrongs, and it does not gossip about them after the fact either. Verse 16, But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. At this point, if they're not listening and they're not responding to your calls for repentance, you step it up and you bring some help with you. Now, when you take others with you to confront the sinning brother or sister, it is important that you bring with you those who are godly, those who are mature, objective, discreet, loving. You want to bring the right people. I said last week, if you bring the town gossip, then you're totally off base. You can't bring the wrong people with you to confront your sinning brother or sister. Well, why? Well, because if they know that that person doesn't have character, then you've just lost your case altogether. They won't even see their own sin because they will not respect the person you brought with them. Or with you, I should say. However, if you bring the right person, godly, mature, objective, discreet, loving, a person with character, righteousness, uprightness, and heart integrity, you bring the right person, then you can confirm the fact. And why are you bringing another person with you? Jesus gives the illustration here. He gives the example here. You're there to confirm every fact. You want to confirm the truth, but also you want to further put pressure, godly pressure, on them to repent. You're pleading with a sinning brother or sister. Look, I'm not just the one saying it. My brother and my sister here who's come with me, they're telling you as well, like, this isn't just me. You're caught in sin. You need to repent, and we're here to help you do it. Again, this must be done prayerfully. This must be done carefully. However, even with others with you, there is no guarantee of success. This doesn't always work, which is why Jesus instructs us then to escalate this matter to the next level if they don't listen to you. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen 
to them, tell it to the church. Now at this point, we have gone from private to public. We've gone from step two to step three, and this is a big step. This is a very big step. This step only takes place if this sinning brother or sister refuses to listen to them, and the them is not just referring to you, the person who's gone, but to the witnesses as well. If by the mouth of two or three witnesses, they will not listen at all. And this word refuse, the Greek word originally here is uh, parakuo, which means several things. It can, it can refer to uh, someone who simply hears wrongly, that's one usage of the word, but it can also, in our context, be used of someone who won't heed a warning or a person who simply ignores or disobeys. And that's the sense of the usage here. It's when a believer is is confronted with their obvious sin, and after multiple confrontations with several godly, caring people, they simply ignore and refuse calls for repentance. New Testament scholar Leon Morris notes that this really only occurs when a person is determined to be set in their ways, when they're just stubborn and they're set and they just they fold their arms and they say, you know what, I don't care what you say, I'm not changing. That's what we're talking about here. If a sinning brother or sister gets to that point, Jesus says, Jesus says, tell it to the church. Now, we have to talk about what is the church, and we've talked about this many times before. We did Uh, Even last year, Pastor Dan and I did a short sermon series, six sermons on what is the church and the blessings and the beauty of the church. We also covered the church back in Matthew 16. So the last year, we've really been uh, moving quite along through the, the doctrine of the church, and that's been by design, by the way. Why did we do all those sermons about the church, you know, a couple months ago and last year? Well, because I knew Matthew 18 was coming. Matthew 18 is here, and we also are talking about the authority of the church in a couple weeks, and we're going to be talking about forgiveness and reconciliation. So all this is really important that we know what is the church. What is the church? This is only one of two places in Matthew's gospel that Jesus uses the word church. The other one is in Matthew 16. But we understand that the church, the church is the the gathered assembly of Christian believers, We, together, it's not the building, it's not the grounds, it's not the property, it is the believers that are gathered together. We are the church. It's the gathering of saints, the body of Christ. Now, the question then is, well, does this refer to the the universal church? Because technically speaking, that the church is all believers in the world. That is the congregation of all believers. So is it the universal church? Or is Jesus referring here to a specific local congregation? And we understand that congregations are just a microcosm of the larger universal church. Every single believer in existence today, and even in history past, that is the body of Christ. But we are a local expression, a regional expression of the body of Christ. And in context here, we understand that Jesus' words are meant for a local congregation. Now this might seem obvious, because how would you tell every single believer in the entire world about your brother's sin? But this becomes very important to to delineate because when we get to verses 18 through 20, we talk about the authority of the church. You're going to see that the local congregation has specific authority that is important that we understand, and we will get to that in the coming weeks. But for now, it's important to note that when he says, tell it to the church, he's referring to the local expression, your brothers and sisters who are in your congregation with you, that is the local expression of the body of Christ. And so, 
How are you to tell it to the church? Well, the most logical and appropriate place to start is with the elders, with the spiritual leadership of the church, which is also, I mean, there's so many places I could go in these kind of messages. Why there's the important for godly and upright elders and leaders. You have to have qualified leadership in the church, otherwise this step breaks down. We could do a whole other, a whole other sermon series about qualified elders. But the point is, you go to the leadership of the church. Again, telling the church does not involve standing up during a members' meeting and airing out all your grievances. That would be pandemonium. That'd be chaos. And certainly, that's not what Jesus is calling for. Certainly, you notify the elders of the church who can determine the best course of action. And oftentimes, and I've seen this happen in other churches as well, other times, when the elders function on behalf of the interest of the church, they themselves can go to the sinning brother or sister on behalf of the church, and there's even kind of like a, a buffer step there. Jesus doesn't delineate it here in this text, but we understand logically when we talk about representatives of the congregation, when the elders go, whenever we make a ruling on anything, a decision on anything, we're doing so on behalf of the church. We pray for wisdom and, and godliness. We want to we do what's best for this congregation. That's every single elders meeting we have, we're always praying about that, every single time. And so this is no different here. So the elders can go to that sinning brother or sister, and they can plead with them. Listen, before we even get to the gathered assembly, we're here on behalf of the congregation. You must repent from your sins. So there is a step that can be taken there. However, sometimes the elders are part of the group of two or three that go to them earlier on. That can happen sometimes as well. A person is caught, they, you know, even if it's, say, you're, you're, you know that an elder is in sin, you don't go to other members of the congregation, you would go to the leadership at that point and say, one of our pastors or one of our elders is in sin, and you would bring the other elders on board and, and show them and, and prove to them that something has happened. And so there's different ways this can play out, but again, the offices of the church are the first ones that should be notified. You're not to get up in front of the entire congregation and start airing out trouble because that just leads to chaos. Now, I want to just make this very clear as well. When you go to the elders, it is not like going to your parents. You're not tattling on people. I know that when that happens in my own household, I'm very quick to say, listen, are you tattling or are you just giving me information that is dire to the other person's health? It's important that we go in the right heart with the right spirit. There are times when church members might be tempted to go to the pastor and to, to try to create leverage for themselves. Well, if I can get the pastor on my side, I've got a better chance of winning my, my spat with my brother or sister. But here's the thing. You need to know that as soon as you go to the leadership of the church, you have escalated the matter to another level of church discipline. And so once you do that, you are intensifying not just the pressure on the person who's in, caught in sin, but you're intensifying the pressure on the whole situation. As soon as you tell the pastors or the elders, you've now brought it to another point. And now it's, we're going to start to look into every single aspect of the matter because we have to. So, now, I want to be very clear also when I say that coming to the pastors for prayer encouragement, counsel, direction, teaching. Of course, we're always here. It's, very, it's totally acceptable to go and say, Pastor, I've got a situation. My brother, my sister's in sin. I don't really know how to approach him. Like, what are some of the th How can I approach it? What are some scriptures? And that's very different. 
Because at that point, I can say, all right, well, as you go, make sure you bring this Bible verse with you. Make sure you pray before, you know, I can, I can coach you through it. But I don't have to know the details. Because if you can handle it on your own, as Scripture tells you to, please do so. But I'm talking about in matters of interpersonal disagreements, be very careful when you approach the leaders of the church. Because now you are wading into this step three now. And I want to just give you caution because you don't want to short-circuit the process. You want, to, you want to obey the Lord and follow His prescription for how to reconcile differences and how to reconcile with your brother and sister when they're caught in sin. It's very important we obey the Lord to the letter here, I think. Again, you also don't want to cheapen the process by misusing it. But if you are obeying Scripture and honoring Christ, the step after going one-on-one and after taking others to go with you is to go to the church. Now, once the elders are made aware of the matter, they can bring it before the assembly. At that point, they have the prerogative to do that. Keeping in mind 1 Corinthians 14.40 tells us that all things that are done in the assembly must be done properly and in an orderly manner. So, again, we have a members meeting. Now, I, I don't love Robert's rules, to be honest with you. I'm not a Robert's rules kind of guy. But once in a great while, I think it is appropriate to use some sort of order. You have to have order in some way. If we can't figure it out amongst ourselves, maybe we do need rules. But the point is, you don't just stand up and start blasting people. You don't do that. And so, if we're supposed to be doing things in proper order, in an orderly manner, what do the elders do? Well, if they have determined that a matter ought to go before the congregation, we would call a members meeting. We would call a members meeting. Now, again, it's important to note here that handling this kind of a a sinning brother or sister a situation You don't want to do this in front of the General Assembly because we don't know if there are unbelievers or strangers in the congregation. On a Sunday morning, we welcome all people to come and worship God together. But the truth is, I don't know all of you. I don't know all of your testimonies. I don't know if all of you are Christians. I don't know that. I I like to think so, but the truth is we don't know. And so church discipline is not to be conducted in the public square, so to speak. Church discipline is to be conducted in the assembly of the believers who know you and love you and who have pledged to love you as well. And once in front of the members, it is the elder's responsibility to notify the church of the person who is in sin in a general overview of that issue. This is not the place to rehearse all the gory details, nor is it a place to bash on the person. Only what is needed to know. This is really important. So here, let me just give you an example Now, I know this is all hypothetical because we're not dealing with a church discipline situation right now, but beloved, we're going to at some point. We're going to. It's going to happen. And so it's important that you know what we are to do when this does happen, and it will happen. So here's how this would go. We stand up. Congregation's there. We're sad to report to you that Joe Smith has been caught in an adulterous affair. He has been confronted biblically first by his wife and then by the elders of our church. Despite all of this, he is unrepentant, and he is still engaging in adultery. And so, beloved, we charge you in the Lord to go after this brother and plead with him for his repentance. And then within some measure of short order, maybe a couple of questions would come up, we would dismiss the congregation, and we would tell them, tell all of you to go to that brother, and you would go after him and not relent until he has repented of his sin. Now, the whole church is pursuing him in church discipline. Now, 
I want to be clear, all four steps of this are considered to be church discipline. But at this point, this is the first place that the whole church is now involved in this matter. Now, what is entailed at this level of discipline? Because you can say, and I've heard even meetings where the pastor says, all right, here's the situation, now go get them. And they close in prayer and they go. What, what does this mean, though? What does it mean to go get them? It means this. First, or excuse me, 2 Thessalonians 3 gives us a couple of words of exhortation. Paul in 2 Thessalonians gives a generic illustration of a brother who is in sin because he refuses to work. He will not get a job. He will not provide for his family. 1 Timothy 5.8 tells us that a man is to provide for his family if he's able. And so in Paul's letter, he deals with a hypothetical person, a man who will not provide for his family and is lazy. And then he doesn't heed warnings from other people. And so in verse 15, Paul says that the sinning brother should not be regarded as an enemy, but admonished as a brother. This is really important. Even when a person is caught in a trespass and we're in the midst of church discipline, that brother or sister is not to be treated like they're an enemy. They're not an enemy of the congregation. Even though they're being disciplined, they're not an enemy. Some churches get this wrong. As soon as the name is forward, that's it, we're done with them. No, this is just beginning. Now the responsibility is to plead with that person. All hands on deck, pleading with them as a brother. The word here, admonish, which Paul uses, is nutheteo in the Greek. This can be translated exhorted. We also derive the word counseled from this. You're to go to them and exhort them, admonish them, rebuke them, counsel them. Bring your Bible, sit down and say, brother, this is the situation. You're caught in sin. You have to repent. And so that's what we are to do, to admonish this sinning brother or sister in the Lord. The sense is that you're giving them a loving rebuke and you're exhorting them toward godly obedience. And so the idea is that the church is going to them, pleading with them, admonishing them, counseling them in hopes that they will be restored to the congregation and to the Lord. Now, while the church does this, how are we supposed to be interacting well, for starters, they would not be permitted to take of the Lord's table. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine is very clear about that. Whenever a person is caught in any kind of a serious sin, I mean, if you're in a serious sin, you're to consider whether or not you're bringing judgment upon yourself by partaking of the Lord's table. So they would be barred from the Lord's table. But also, the church would then withhold themselves from intimate fellowship. I would say intimate fellowship. 2 Thessalonians 3, six. we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life. The, uh, the concept, the principle here is that you withdraw from them. Again, not as an enemy. You don't shun them and say, I'm not looking at you, I'm not talking to you. That's not what it is. You're doing this as a brother or a sister who's under discipline. So again, go back to our example of Joe Smith. And I, have, I pray there's no Joe Smith in the room, by the way, because this is going to be really awkward. But let's just say our brother, a hypothetical brother, Joe Smith, he calls you up and he says, hey, why don't you come over and watch the game with me? And he's acting like there's nothing wrong. You respond with something like, Joe, that'd be great. I'd love to go and watch the game with you. In fact, that would be, I really enjoy that. That would be wonderful. But here's the thing, brother, I can't do that. And you know I can't do that. However, I can come over and we can talk about the fact that you're still in this sin. You haven't gone back to your wife yet. You're not reconciled to each other. 
And so I'm more than happy to come and talk with you, to pray with you, to counsel you. We can do this together, but I can't come over and just watch football like there's nothing going on. That's what it means to withhold from intimate fellowship. We're not just carrying on like business as usual because sin is not a small thing. We can't just pretend like everything's hunky-dory. It's all fine because it's not fine. At this level of rebellion, this person's in danger, in danger. Again, you're not just shunning a person who doesn't know better. They have been brought through a very specific process up to this point. They're well aware of what their sin is. But this level of rebellion, it's dangerous for their soul. It's also dangerous for the church, which we'll talk about next week. We simply cannot act buddy-buddy with a person, a brother or sister, who is caught in such sin. And Scripture, however, gives us its exhortation, Galatians 6, 1 and 2. I've read this verse pretty much every week I've done this passage because it applies to every single step. Brethren, brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. That's really important. When you act as though the sinning brother or sister, it's not a big deal, what happens is that sends a message to the entire church that we don't care about that sin. And that's really dangerous. And I've, I've actually been part of and counseled pastors and elders through certain church discipline situations. I remember specifically, and I, I will not get into any names obviously, but a situation where one of the elders of a church had committed adultery. And one elder, one other elder, wanted to keep him on their preaching rotation and the pastor said, absolutely not. And they, they had this big, huge thing, and it became this long, protracted issue of meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting. Meanwhile, the pastor, the elder, is sitting in the congregation. Now, he eventually left the woman he was with, but still sitting there, not confronted, not rebuked, nothing. And the pastor was concerned because if we don't, say, if we don't do something about this before the entire congregation, what's the message we're sending? We're sending a message that it's okay for us to commit adultery because, look, even one of our elders is committing adultery. Terribly dangerous, awful, abhorrent even. And so, again, the goal of admonishing them is repentance leading to restoration. Again, they've already gone through two or three people who tried to do this, and now everything has changed. It's gone from private to public, and now the floodgates are open and a hundred people are going after this brother or sister who's caught in sin. And what does that do? It puts godly pressure on them, on the sinning brother or sister to repent. Because on some level, their life becomes really difficult, doesn't it? I want you to think about this practically. The whole church is after them, praying for them. They probably feel the effects of that. Calling them on the phone, stopping by their house, blowing up their phone with text messages, asking to meet with them. That's the... That's the the idea that we go after them, pleading with them. So at a certain point, they're going to get so tired of fielding our inquiries, they're going to say, fine, I'll sit down and we'll talk about it. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm missing something. That's the whole point. You bring them to the point where they just it's overwhelming to them. Why? Because we're the last-ditch effort. We're the last chance for them before they're turned over. And so you plead with them like they're your own flesh and blood. How would you plead with your children? How would you plead with your spouse? 
How would you plead with anybody that you're close to, a best friend? You'd plead with them with your life, wouldn't you? To restore them back to the Lord? After all, doesn't Jesus say, Matthew 18, 14, so it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. God does not desire anyone to be lost. Nobody. And so this is deadly serious. Again, the church is the last step, the last barrier between the sinner and their sin, pleading with them to repent. This is an act of love. It's because we love each other. Of course, for the brother or sister who's under church discipline, it's not going to feel like it's very loving, is it? In the moment, they're going to be really upset about this. They're not going to be happy. It kind of blows my mind that this culture that we live in, it's all about happiness. That as soon as someone's not happy about something, I don't want to go do that. It doesn't make me happy. Well, I don't like eating vegetables, but that's good for me. I mean, that's, you know, just because you're not happy doesn't mean it's not good. Consider what Hebrews 12 says. Hebrews 12, 7, it is for discipline that you, the body of Christ, endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, and I would even add, reproved by it, admonished by it, counseled by it, rebuked by it, afterwards it yields, listen to this, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The goal of church discipline is ultimately to bring that sinning brother or sister through repentance, through reconciliation, bring them back to the assembly. In the case of our Brother Joe Smith, who is estranged from his wife, to bring them back together if she will accept him back, bring them to a, some kind of harmonious agreement, and in the end, that it would yield for that sinning brother or sister the peaceful fruit of righteousness, that they would be sitting in the congregation restored fully, walking in righteousness, and be finally back at peace in the congregation. No guilt or shame hanging over their head, they're at peace now. Because they have bowed the knee to Christ, they've listened to the counsel, their brothers and sisters, and they have repented, and now they're back. That is the goal. Church discipline, when done correctly, is truly the Father's discipline. We're being corrected by those who have been committed to love us. By the way, this is another reason why church membership matters so much as well. I could do a whole sermon on church membership, right? All these things work together. Biblical ecclesiology works together. Church membership matters because if you simply attend a church for years and years and you never engage, never commit, never submit, you won't feel the congregation's pressure and love and kindness if they're correcting you whenever you're in sin. You won't even feel it. You won't even care. And so what you're doing is you're cutting off a tool a device that God has put in your life to keep you sort of fenced in from sinning against the Lord and sinning against the church. 
But if you cut that off and you say, you know what, I, these are great people. You know, I like singing together. I like hearing the Word of God being preached. That's great. But I, I could do without it. I don't want to join that church, and I'm just going to keep them aloof. Then you're putting yourself at risk because nobody can look into your life now and see what's going on. And if you are in sin, you won't want to hear it from them. You won't even care. But the church family that you have, that should be what I just said. That should be family to you. The threat of losing your church should be a, a terrible thought for you. But if your church family, not only you're going to be respond, more apt to respond but when they correct you, but you're going to sense a real loss if they were to deliver you over if you don't repent. There should be a sense of connection here. I know that just autobiographically, this, this church is my family. I praise God I have natural family in this assembly, but all of you are family to me. And to lose family would be absolutely devastating for me. And I hope for you as well. And so when Jesus says, tell it to the church, it's no small thing. It's meant to be an all-out love assault on the sinning brother or sister until they repent and turn back to the Lord. Jay Adams writes, he is one of the greatest, I think, manuals on church discipline ever written, at least in this century, is probably by Jay Adams. But he says this, Discipline is not easy to do correctly or even to do at all. It involves courage and fortitude. It requires care and precision. It must be done neither in a sloppy or careless manner. Therefore, the process must be carried on with the knowledge and assurance that what is being done is right in God's sight. But even though discipline is difficult and runs many risk, risks, churches dare not run a greater risk of withholding a privilege and a blessing provided by Christ, thus depriving sinning members of all the help that He has provided for them. Don't, over, don't look over that statement. That's huge. Nor dare they disobey Him in refusing to follow His program for church discipline, lest in the end they find themselves disciplined by Him. A helpful encouragement for us. And so we are to... Submit ourselves. When you join a local church as a member, as a visible member, yes, you're pledging to, to serve and to love and give and participate, and you're also submitting to you know, engaging in body life and getting to know each other and fellowship and all those things, but you're also submitting to church leadership, and you're submitting your life back to the assembly. Brothers and sisters, if you see anything, any trespass in me that is not above reproach, I expect, I expect that somebody would come and tell me. And the likewise for you all as well. When you join the church, you're saying, I expect that if my life starts to run astray and I don't see it, that a brother or sister in Christ will come to me in gentleness, because I need gentleness and humility and love, and tell me my sin. Isn't that what we signed up for? To have other people, and again, not not those who are troublesome meddlers looking for problems, because I'll, I'll have a, a different conversation about that. But we're not looking to point out each other's specks in their eyes, right? We're here to love each other and help each other to strive closer and closer to Christ's likeness, to run together in the same direction. And we're not looking left and right, by the way. 
We're not looking to, what are they doing? What are they doing? What are they doing? Are they better than me? Worse than me? That's not the point. We all run with our eyes forward toward Christ. And when we do look left and right, it's to check on our brothers and sisters to see, are they running okay? And if they're not, you put your arm around them and you say, how can I help you? How do I help you run toward Christ? And maybe they've tripped and fallen. You go back and you pick them up. And if you can't lift them, you get someone else to help you lift them up as well. And if someone else can't help you, you get the entire church to go back, stop what they're doing, go back, and bring that brother or sister along toward Christ-likeness. That is our responsibility. But it's also a great blessing and our great joy. It's a great joy to win and help brothers and sisters toward Christ. But what do you do if you're struggling in sin and don't know what to do? Because that's the other side of the coin, isn't it? It's one thing if someone else sees something in me, but what if you see something in you that no one else sees and you don't know what to do? And you're struggling, and you're praying, and you're trying, and you're slugging away, and you're, you're trying to cut off limbs and pluck out eyes, metaphorically, of course, and you're hobbling along. What do you do? Because some people, I'd say most people, are terrified at the idea of having their sin brought to light like this. I'd say for most of you, probably all of you, it would absolutely mortify you if your name was brought before the congregation. However, it doesn't have to get to that point if you repent, if you listen to godly counsel. But what if you, what if you are caught in a trespass and can't figure out how to get out of it? What do you do? Well, brothers and sisters, you ask for help. You ask for help. First, you ask the Lord to help you. You ask Him. Lord, please have mercy on me. And you don't stop. You wrestle with God and you beg Him to help you. I don't want to sin against you. Now, if you're deluding yourself, that's a different issue. But if you know you're in sin, you throw yourself at the mercy of God and know what the Bible says. The Bible says if you confess your sins to God, He is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you. That, I quote that verse all the time. It's not a life verse, but maybe it should be. But that verse is so important. Why? Because it places confession and forgiveness squarely on the faithfulness and justice of God. It means that if I confess my sins, and my confession is legitimate, if it's genuine, if I confess my sins, it's on Him because He's put it on Him to, to forgive us and to cleanse us. It's not on me. I can't make Him forgive me. But it's on His character. I don't have to be good enough for Him. He is good enough for me. It's on God's character to forgive. And by His grace, He does forgive. We have a forgiving God. And you, by the power of the Holy Spirit working within you, yes, you are able to go to God and plead with Him for help. And He, what He can do for you, is He can increase your hatred for your sins. He can increase your resolve to fight that sin. He can increase your desire for discipline. And you have to get mean. You've got to get violent against your own sin. When it means, when you're talking about plucking out eyes and cutting off limbs here, we're talking about unplugging TVs, throwing away phones, driving a different route home from work, maybe even changing jobs, changing careers, changing, changing friends, whatever, whatever it takes to get yourself away from sinful patterns. You've got to get mean against your own sinfulness. And so he can give you the help to do it. 
And in terms of not only giving you a hatred for your sin, he can also give you an increased desire for righteousness, a love for his goodness. And so, again, all this going to the Lord, but even then, even when you go to the Lord, consider going to a brother or sister in Christ to help you. Ask someone you trust, will you pray with me? I'm a little scared to tell you what, what, what's going on in my life, but I, I just need prayer. I'm, I'm fighting something right now. I, I need you to pray with me. And they might say, well, I'm here to talk whenever you want to talk about it. And maybe you do tell them the whole thing. But again, I would be very careful. A trusted brother or sister in Christ, someone you trust, who's not going to go and blab it to everybody else, someone who can actually counsel you and pray with you and bear your burden and so fulfill the law of Christ, Go to someone you trust. Go to someone who's godly and mature. Ask a believer to help you. Don't broadcast it. Don't overshare. That's another thing that we do. We just, we, I've seen it before. People who just are, I don't know if they're desperate to get help or just desperate to talk. I don't know what it is. But they tell every single person all their problems all the time. And my goodness, like how are you going to get any kind of genuine help for that? Tell one person. Start with one. And see what happens. Enlist faithful believers. Because again, this will stop that inevitable church discipline process if you are engaged in self-discipline. And it can be a great, a great blessing to you and to them if they can help you. And if you still need help or still need to know Scripture or application of Scripture, then yes, go to your shepherds, go to your pastors and your elders. Absolutely. Ask for help. Pastor, I need, I, I'm working with something right now. I just need some counsel. Absolutely. We're here to help you. But all of this to say, if you know you're caught in sin, don't harden your heart. Soften your heart. And if a brother or sister comes to you in earnestness and they see a sin in your life, don't, don't shun them right away. Don't put up your arm. Consider what they're saying to you. Pray about it. Examine yourself. Don't harden your hearts. Don't wander away. Trust the Lord and, and dig in, knowing that your sins have been paid for by Christ. Because that's, that's really the center of all of this, that we can have forgiveness for our sins and reconciliation with God and with other people. Why? Because Jesus Christ has paid for us. Jesus himself, he went to the cross, bore all the guilt and all the shame and all the punishment eternally, for our sins and gave us of his righteousness and wrapped that righteousness around us like a cloak and delivered us over to the Father and said, this one's mine. They belong to me. They're my little one. And we are accepted in the beloved because of his goodness to us. And so if you don't know Jesus Christ, turn from your sins, even now, Turn from your sins and put your faith in Him. Trust in Him. And if you do know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your Lord, but you know you're caught in sin, stop dead in your tracks. And I would even say when you leave here, don't even, don't even talk to anybody in the hall. Go home and repent of your sins and ask Him to help you. It's so important that we are doing what is faithful and right in God's eyes. And it's also important that we help each other. That's the whole point of all of this church discipline is to help each other to be more like Christ. And so I'm, I'm charging all of you and I'm entrusting all of this to all of you that we together 
are helping one another to grow in Christ-likeness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a, a great blessing and what an honor it is that you would call us, Lord, to help one another to grow. Because, Lord, you know better than even we know, we are sinners by nature and by choice, that we are no better. We have no business in terms of our own inherent self-righteousness to call out anybody in sin. And yet, Lord, you desire that we would be faithful to that, to help each other. Lord, we get to be instruments in your it's in terms of your redemptive process, at least earthly, we get to be part of what you're doing here. And so, Lord, I pray that even though we're in these verses and this, this doesn't seem even applicable today in this instance because we're not engaged in church-wide discipline, Lord, I know that there's going to come a day, and maybe even soon, where we will have to do this and engage in this kind of process. And Lord, whatever, this, whatever comes of this, we don't want to do it wrong. Let our church, Lord, always be prepared and trained up and ready to help each other to be reconciled to one another and to You. Lord, have mercy on us and help us. And we thank You for Your great loving kindness toward us. We love You with all of our heart, and we bless You. In Jesus' name, amen.